You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. So we're joined today by Meredith Henley, who's a writer and historian who lives here in Washington, D.C. Her work has appeared in Humanities, New York Times, Washington Post, Salon, Daily Beast, Christian Science Minor, Long Reads, Barnes & Noble Review, and others. Currently, she is senior writer for Humanities, the quarterly review of the National Endowment for the Humanities, which as of today still exists, so we're happy about that. And she is the author of Destination Casablanca, Exile, Espionage, and the Battle for North Africa in World War II. Welcome to SpyCast, and thank you for taking the time to join us today. Thank you for having me. So I I always like to ask authors, historians especially, of uh, writing about intelligence, kind of where the idea for the books come from, because... World War II is a massive war, and people mm-hmm. have written a lot about it, but the intelligence side hasn't been done all that well. Uh, you're kind of taking a very specific location and kind of a niche part of the war, North Africa. Usually when you hear North Africa in World War II talking about Rommel and the desert, but this is, this is a smaller story, but it has broad implications. So where in the world did this idea come from for this book? Well, it may not surprise you to hear it came actually from the movie. <laughs> um, like everyone, I've seen the movie. I saw it in high school. And even then, I was interested in the questions of why is the French resistance in North Africa? Why are they in Casablanca? What are the refugees doing there? What is this whole notion of papers and spies? Um, and that kind of stuck with me. And every time I would see the movie, I you know would have those same questions over and over. It's that sort of historian brain kicks in. Right. And, um, but then I, when I was doing research for, for my dissertation, I, you know, you start spinning microfilm and looking through documents and you're looking for very specific things. But as I was, you know, on the hunt, I would see mentions of Casablanca and refugees and Casablanca and internment camps. And then also other things coming in and OSS records from Casablanca. And I, kind of filed that away because you can't always go after the shiny thing right. at that moment. Um, and so when I was looking to write a book, I 
when I remember those documents and I remember those questions and I went back and looked and I thought, what really is going on here? What is the story of Casablanca during the war? Well, this is amazing. I mean, this is one of the most popular movies ever made. And the fact that no one has sat down and said, let me do the history of this. I know. From this that's kind of the holy grail. It's like, what do you mean no one's done this? That's wonderful. I know why yes. they haven't yeah. done it now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's obviously not easy to do. This was, you know, for anyone checking out this book, uh, their first reaction may be, wow, that's a big book. Um, because, you know, there's so many moving parts in this. And I, and I want to ask you a little bit about research because sure. anytime you're writing history, research is problematic, but intelligence history especially so yes. because uh, none of these documents were written for us. You know, sometimes they're written for everything from cover your ass mm -hmm. to disinformation, everything in between mm -hmm. and redaction, all that, all the problems associated with doing about intelligence right. history. So let's talk a little bit about the research. I mean, you talk a little bit about how you saw bits and pieces of it while mm -hmm. you're researching your dissertation, but... How do you start a research project like this? Do you dive right in at a certain point or you pick pieces away from the periphery? You, um, I started picking pieces off um, and I started with you know, record groups. So it was State Department, the, the consulate records, RG84, amazing trove of information, both about what's going on in the city, but also politics. Um, and, then also, uh, and then there are lots of glimmers of spies in those records because it's um, when they show up at the consulate, there's a record of that. When they have to get a new passport, there's a record of that. Um, when they need more office space, there's a record <laughs> of that. When they have to requisition more office space, there's a record. Uh, so that was sort of provided glimpses. And then, of course, I dove into OSS records, which are kind of a mess. Um, Not kind of a mess. They're a complete mess. They're a total <laughs> mess. Um, but I dove into those, and then I started triangulating back from that. Uh, the uh, records for OSS aren't as good for Casablanca as they are for other places. But I was sort of a able to triangulate. Um, I used those, and then I used you know, a standard State Department. Um, I got really lucky because OSS did a oral history called the Torch Anthology, which they did right after, not too long after Torch, because Donovan was trying to have this record of OSS's contribution to the war and to Torch. And so they sat down with all of the OSS agents and interviewed them about what they did in the run-up to Torch. And it's really useful, not just because it's a kind of oral history, but because there are people commenting on what the answers are. Mm. And so they'll actually disagree, and they'll be like, well, that's not really quite what happened, or he's being very modest here. He really did X, <laughs> Y, and Z. Um, and so essentially it becomes a process of triangulation. Personal papers were also really important. Uh, Dave King and Stafford Reed, their personal papers were out at Hoover Institution. There were lots of um, glimmers of what was going on in those. Uh, same with Robert Murphy's papers are also out there. Uh, Stafford Reed also wrote uh, a memoir. And there are two copies. One he wrote, uh, the copy is actually at the National Archives. And he wrote it because he was brought back to Casablanca in 43, from Casablanca to, 40, to DC in 43. And they did, gave him a, a, um, a medical exam and discovered he had a heart murmur. Hmm. So they didn't want to send him back out in the field. And he was angry um, because he thought, this is ridiculous. I've been on, you know, I've been on assignment and did perfectly fine. Uh, so he, one of the ways he channeled his anger was to write sort of a memoir of what he did. Uh, so there's that copy. But there's also another copy out at Hoover, uh, which he kind of polished up and was hoping to publish. 
and they're very interesting in terms of what's in one and what's right. in not and how the how the the criticisms kind of get shaved off a little bit um, in the more sort of um, the one that he was hoping to publish the one in the National Archives is pretty raw uh, which was really helpful too right I mean that's the, the greatest thing there is the kind of not only is it immediate after what had happened so it's not right. like it's been whitewashed through either his brain or kind of editing right. you know but you're getting the mm. the real feelings right. at the time instead of it being kind of you know produced and manufactured through the the process to create something that people might want to read someday right and one of the other things that was really helpful was to um uh gordon howe who wrote northwest africa for the army green book series um his documentation for that book is also available it's in the national archives and he interviewed everybody trying to track down facts mm -hmm. and if you go through the correspondence for that there's all kinds of interesting tidbits and he was nailing down a lot of the questions that I had trying to figure out who was doing what where and that was really helpful too he also interviewed all of these guys as well let's talk a little bit about the importance of Casablanca you know sure. in a micro sense but also North Africa writ large you know the there's a lot of people don't mm -hmm. It's a kind of a footnote to the war, right. looking at it in hindsight, right? You look at the invasion of Europe and then the island hopping campaign in the Pacific and the atomic bombing in the Pacific. This kind of North African campaign is seen as almost, for tank people, it's great because you have you Rommel, Rommel and everybody. But for the most part, it kind of it's secondary, even tertiary to the World War II right. story. But there's pretty important reasons that they go to North Africa in the first place. There are a lot of important reasons they go to North Africa, but let's, well, let's start with Casablanca. Um, which was kind of a minor port city in, on the coast of it, the Atlantic until the 20th century when the French took over uh, the kingdom, kingdom of Morocco. In the Treaty of Fez in 1912 carved Morocco up. So uh, the northern one-fourth went to Spain, and it was called Spanish Morocco. Tangier became an international free trade zone, free city. And then uh, the southern three-fourths became the French protectorate of Morocco. And the French... Like every other colony, they came to basically exploit it economically. And um, they were very unhappy with the Treaty of Fez because they really wanted Tangier, mm. which was the jewel. It was the port. It's on the Atlantic. It's right across from Gibraltar. But the French said, okay, we can't have Tangier. We'll just turn Casablanca into the largest port on the Atlantic. And so it becomes, in, so in 1916, it's a town of 67,000 people. By 1940, it's a town of 350,000, and it is the economic hub of the country now. Um, and it, it's really important because it has modern port facilities. Um, there are rail lines that go in. And when, when the Eisenhower and Patton and everybody at AFHQ in London started looking at North Africa, they realized that... Casablanca could be a very good opportunity in terms of logistics because they could turn it into a logistical hub. You sail American ships across the Atlantic, they dock at Casablanca, then you can use the rail lines to send supplies up to Algiers. You don't have to worry about going through the Straits of Gibraltar. Mm -hmm. um, also, there's a, if you take Morocco, there's a nice concrete airstrip up at Port Laute, which will also be incredibly important. Um, so that, in that sense, Casablanca is important for that um, for that reason. Well, the converse is also true that if the Germans are able to capture this yes. area, they have a massive port facility that can straight right. shot to the United yes. States, airfields, naval yep. you know, and in fact, bases. Hitler actually makes a play for the air bases in Casablanca. He makes a play for Morocco. 
um, shortly after the creation of Vichy and ends up backing down um, and decides to basically focus on Britain and Russia instead. And um, But he definitely had designs on Casablanca and on Morocco because it was a jumping off point to the United States. So everyone sort of looks at the map and sees it has possibilities. Mm-hmm. Well, North Africa, in a broader sense, was pretty important for the British slash allies to maintain it because... Yes. The ability of the Germans to cut off the Mediterranean would have yeah. been essentially a death sentence for right. all of the British Empire, you know, right. access to the Suez. But also, you know, for anyone who knows the basic plan of the Allies in World War II is, is the invasion from the south yes. into Sicily. And then Italy was required first conquering North Africa. So the idea is that if you, if we, if the Allies go to North Africa, they can use it as a springboard. They can go to southern France. They go to Italy. They go to um, Greece, Sicily. And it sort of it become it's it's a way to get to Europe without necessarily having to do the cross channel invasion, which they weren't ready to do, and they mm-hmm. wouldn't be ready to do until 1944. Um, North Africa is still hard. It, it's a hard campaign. It was you know it wasn't guaranteed that it would work, um, but it also had other advantages in that it kind of gave a really green, particularly the Americans, a really green fighting force, a chance to find their feet. Mm -hmm. Now, they would stumble when they got to Tunisia a bit, but, you know, they, uh, the invasion of uh, Morocco and Algiers, Morocco in particular, is a very successful amphibious um, invasion. It's the first one of the war for the Americans. Let me ask a little bit, you talk about, you brought up Vichy government. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a lot of politics involved yeah. once Vichy becomes the government. You know, it's just the basic background for anyone out there that doesn't understand is when the Germans invaded France uh, in 1940, they, uh, a lot of the French capitulated and they became some uh, puppet state in southern France called Vichy, because uh, that's where the government moved to. Uh, but even though there are those that, were considered collaborators with the Germans. There was a lot of internal politics within the Vichy government uh, where people like making jokes about the French, but there were people who really only pretended to be capitulating to the Germans, mm-hmm. but kind of kept up the ruse from the outside. So some of the big arguments, and you, you, you talk about these a lot in the book, is how do you keep the Vichy government from giving French North Africa just straight to the Germans? Right. Handing it over, right, as part of the deal, um, and how to keep the French from using North African resources to help reinforce the German war effort. Because, you know, North Africa is wanted because of resources. Yes. You know, everything from the road to the Middle East to natural resources in North Africa itself. You know, can you talk a little bit about the politics that within Vichy, like forget the outside, but just within the kind of leadership of trying to maintain that balance? So there's a... Um the Vichy politics are really, uh, they're incredibly complicated. At one point, I actually had essentially a murder board <laughs> set up of, because it was, it, musical uh, people change positions so often in musical chairs. But obviously, at the head is Philippe Pétain, who is a World War I hero. He's the hero of Verdun. And he is who everyone reveres. And everything in Vichy revolves around him. And then there's like sort of cast of characters. There's Darlan and... Um, uh, and others who, and Wigand, they are also in it for their own devices as well. And Darlan is definitely a full-on collaborator. Wigand, uh, Maxime Wigand, who is a uh, French army general, he uh, is not. And he uh, understands that Vichy has, he helped birth Vichy, but then he wasn't too keen on collaborating with the Germans, and he gets in, and that sort of gets him into trouble. And one of the two 
rather than just fire him, Peyton creates a, a new position called the High Commissioner of uh, North Africa and sends Wegan to North Africa with the idea that he could sort of mine North Africa, which Peyton, it was very important to um, Peyton and the others who created Vichy. They, if the Germans had insisted that they give up the French colonies in North Africa, they would not have signed the armistice. They were so important to them, both um, in the sort of their mind, but also economically. So they send Wake, so they send Wagan off to uh, North Africa. Um, he's very grumpy, but he gets there and he tries to make most of the job. And that creates an opening for a few people to think that maybe he could be dealt with. He could be brought onto the. American side, um, particularly uh, Franklin Roosevelt, thinks that Wagan maybe isn't a collaborator and he could be dealt with. Well, and these are all incredibly strong personalities. Yes. I mean, you talk about Pitan and, and, and Wagan and, and Girard and, and yeah. Darlan, and then yeah. we haven't even brought up Charles de Gaulle yet. No, you know, who becomes the ultimate part of this strong story. personality. You know, I mean, there's a cult of personality in France yes. surrounding Pitan, you know, yes. from World War One. And, and these leaders don't get along with each other. I mean, they're, they don't. They're, to the Makes point where some of them drama. actually want to like execute the others for collaboration <laughs> and other like that yes. too. And, and, and it, what plays out is an interesting tug of war between those who've colluded and those who resisted, and then how that flips. You brought up Darlan was a right. full fledged collaborator until it was time for him not to be. Right. And you know, you you kind of see this where even the lower level leadership in Casablanca. Uh, you know, that's where the whole roundup, the usual suspects comes from. It's like, we're not actually going to do the real job here. We're right. going to just do what we can to placate the Germans. And even things like cooking the books on troop numbers to slowly reacting when the United States finally arrives yes. to send in reinforcements. This is tricky for the people on the ground. Now I'm bringing it down to kind of the French bureaucrats on the ground because yeah. one misstep and you get the Gestapo on top of you. You get the, you know, the full weight of the German machine cracking down. And not only that, on a bigger scale, and I'll, I'll let you talk after okay. On a bigger scale, you could entice the Germans to go, well, the Vichy can't control this area. We're going to do it ourselves and actually invade. Which is what, I mean, invade, fear of invasion, fear of the Germans invading North Africa is really what led a lot of people in French Morocco to continue to work with the Vichy regime. That's definitely the case for the resident general, uh, Charles Nogas, who is a, he's a World War I veteran. He's a veteran of the Rif campaign in, in Morocco. He loves Morocco. He thought, he wanted the French to continue fighting from North Africa, to continue the fight, to not give in. But when that was clear it wasn't going to happen, he decided that he would do what he could to keep Morocco from the Germans. And I find him to be one of the more interesting characters in the book because you can see him make a series of small and sometimes large accommodations with himself and his sort of moral compass to the point where he gets to be a full-fledged collaborator yeah. by the end and is considered to be that. Um, but there are other, uh, on the ground, you also, people continue to work for the regime. Um, like, But the... Uh, the governor of Casablanca, a man named Contard, was actually re relieved of his duties because he wasn't considered to be Vichy enough. Mm -hmm. um, he's replaced with a absolute apricotchnik. And, um, but at the same time, you got people like Colonel Maurice Harvaux, who is the head of the Securité in Casablanca, who works with the resistance and with Dave King. And you get the head, and you get um, Albert Breitel, who is 
the head of uh, counterintelligence who also works with OSS. And then you get people like Antoine Bethuart, who is the head of the Casablanca division, who keeps um, the Americans and OSS at a distance until it's clear that they're coming, and then he tries to convince uh, no guess to throw in his lot mm. with the allies and to not fight. And that doesn't turn out so well for him. Yeah. Because <laughs> we'll be right back after this. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Yeah, I mean, there are interesting external politics here, too, because the the British become even more an enemy to the French in North Africa than even the Germans are yes. in certain cases. And that's because of the destruction of the French fleet and, and other things right. like that, too. And so when the Americans get involved, even at the lower levels of the OSS, but then later on with a full-fledged military assault, right. the role of the British has to be kept... You yeah, know, like hide somewhere. Even though you're involved, don't let them see that you're involved right. because the hatred of the British for the French, I mean, that goes back centuries, certainly, but it, it's really... Mirza Kabir, though. Yeah. And it really does inflame. Like, so when the British sink the French fleet at Mirza Kabir, it just really galvanizes hatred for them in North Africa. And it, it's right. I mean, the American, the Western task force that invades French Morocco, there are no Brits, and it's intentional because they worry that if the Brits do show up, then the French really will fight. And mm. what they would like them to do is not fight. Right. Um, but that doesn't, you know, they still end up fighting. Um, there are some Brits, obviously, the British forces that come ashore with Algiers. But the British, um, the, the British element is definitely, that sort of element's definitely a problem. But it also, I mean, in some ways, it creates an opportunity for the Americans in French Morocco because... Uh, one, after Marriage Al Kabir, the British consulate packs up and has to leave, and they seal up the they seal up the consulate, they seal up the embassy in uh, Tangier. I'm sorry, that's not true. Tangier embassy stays open, um, but they seal up Casablanca, and they're basically burning. They're burning their codes, they're burning the files, and they're running out of the country before they get arrested. And that means that the Americans then absorb all British affairs, and so all roads in Casablanca start to lead to the American consulate. And the American consulate becomes really one of the few games in town mm -hmm. for both refugees, but also it becomes a big, you know, spy hub. Right. Well, let's talk about some of the personalities that are sure. notable in this book. And, and the one that truly stands out is Josephine Baker, uh, mm -hmm. who people may know of as an entertainer, but some know that she was also a, a very effective intelligence officer. Um, I'm using that word on purpose. She was basically a pro uh, by the time she got around to uh, later in the war. Uh, and, and her war really begins with the invasion of France. I mean, the, mm -hmm. the idea, well, even right. before, you even could before. say that when France joins the war but hasn't been quite invaded yet, she used her her position to help the French intelligence to identify, I guess, Nazi sympathizers, probably right. the right word, you know, for a fifth column inside right. France. She's a great... Um 
she's a great example of someone you wouldn't who's a good spy, but you wouldn't think they would be. Yeah. In part because everybody wants to talk to Josephine Baker and they want to impress her, and so they tell her things, and she can chat up anybody and she can go anywhere, and people just doors just open for her, and so she collects intelligence and she would write down information on her arm at parties and then to bring it back so she would remember what it was and her handler who um a man by the name of um, Jacques Bay um just veered for her that she would get caught um that she would jeopardize herself for it um but she and she's very much committed and she also understands particularly once v- with the advent of Vichy that if she is caught she'll be arrested and she will be made an example of mm-hmm. Well, I mean, some of the tradecraft involved right. using secret writing on the sheet music to pinning stuff inside her clothes, but she knew right. she wouldn't be searched right, to that level. Right, who is going to search Madame Baker? It's, um, you know, so when she comes to, um, she leaves Vichy and she ends up in Morocco. And the idea is, and she's sent there by uh, French intelligence and uh, free French intelligence. And the idea is that she, because of who she is, she has more freedom to go places than mm-hmm. other people. It's easier for her to get visas. It's easier easier for her to get, make arrangements. And that is definitely the case. She flits around between Portugal and Spain. And while she's there, she collects information and she writes it on invisible ink on the back of sheet music. Well, and, and she's going to back. parties and she's going to parties, functions and just everybody's yeah. talking to her. I mean, perfect. It's perfect. Um, but then she has a health crisis. And she ends up stuck in a Casablanca clinic for more than for a year and a half. And even then she's still spying because her, um, her hospital room becomes a place where everybody wants to come because everybody wants to pay their respects to Madame Baker to make sure that she's fine. Does she need anything? Is she doing well? And so it becomes a, it becomes a gathering place and they just collect intelligence from that. And I actually got an email from a woman um, who grew up in Casablanca and she said her mother had the room next to Josephine Baker <laughs> in the clinic <laughs> and she could hear her saying Jacques, Jacques um, you know down the hall so definitely even then she's you know even if she's ill and very very ill she's still you know doing her part well and as she was up and moving at, at certain points uh, kind of the perfect cover for the people with her Right. Because you could essentially be invisible if you're walking around Joe Baker because no one's paying attention to you. No. They're paying attention to her. Right. Yeah. I mean, that was an interesting part. You know, uh, I guess the professional intelligence officer who was her... Um, Hander, her handler slash lover. lover. Yes. I'm trying to figure out the way to put that. No, it's, it's um, pretty... She's pretty... He and Both she and he are pretty explicit about that. Well, and, so. the, and the worry he had was, like, would he be rounded up? And then he realized that no one was paying any attention to him. It was all her. And he could essentially was invisible as he moved through. Mm-hmm. That's about as good as it gets when you're trying exactly. to, to blend in. You've already mentioned Dave King and, and Staff Reed. That, to me, they're interesting because they're the first to provide any kind of intelligence from this area of the world. I mean, for decades, U.S. intelligence had depended on the British and the French for mm-hmm. information yeah. about North Africa. And, you know, we, we after 9-11, everyone kind of freaked out about the fact that we had a bunch of Russian speakers at CIA and no one spoke Arabic right. and very few people spoke Pashto or anything else. There was no Arabic speakers for U.S. intelligence prior to World War II. They, um, they went looking in military intelligence and they, there were none. So it's North Africa, it's um, mostly, it's also, you know, French is the second tier language. Um, the French are also in charge. So they started looking for French speakers. And um, King and Reed had um, both sort of 
volunteer their services in different ways. They'd mentioned to Army Intelligence that they would be interested in, in doing something. And both had been in Army Intelligence in World War One, So they had some ties. Um, King also had something else that would help him a great deal as he worked in Casablanca, which was he had also joined the French Foreign Legion. Uh, he left Harvard uh, when World War I started, and he signed up with the French Foreign Legion, and he went and fought in France. And so that gave him an in, because the French Foreign Legion is incredibly important mm -hmm. in North Africa. Um, so he had an in with all of the sort of the French officer corps in Casablanca, and it gave him a little more cachet. But neither one of them, even though they both... Um, would sort of transition from um, to intelligence during the war. Neither one of them were experts in the region. And in fact, when they were looking, they just couldn't find anybody. And they just rounded up people who spoke French and seemed to be sort of capable and maybe good at a cocktail party. You know? Well, there's always a trick because you never knew the, 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 you know, who you're dealing with, whether or not they were loyal to France proper or to Vichy, or right. there were had some leanings toward the Germans. Germans. And kind of, it's tricky to find people to recruit, because one misstep, and then all of a sudden, you've attracted the attention of a very heavy presence of the Gestapo down right. in Casablanca in North Africa. And they were watched constantly. Uh, they had tails, they were, I mean, every movement was observed. They, but they, you know, they, so they had, they developed a, Phones are tapped. They actually developed a way of communicating on phones. It involved a lot of American slang that would confuse both the French and the Germans, um, just to sort of mix things up. Well, and their cover was they there was an agreement, a an economic agreement right. between the United States, which hadn't joined the war yet, and in Vichy, France, and North Africa to send supplies. And so they were sent down to be in supply inspectors, yes, uh, which put them in a position to talk to just about everybody. It's great cover because. The, the idea as part of the agreement was that the British really weren't keen on the agreement because they worried that sending supplies into North Africa would break the blockade. But they said, okay, fine, if we have to do this and this is a way to sort of keep relations open with Vichy, um, they're going to be, you know, inspectors. So they end up with 12 uh, initially, and they're jokingly called the apostles because of 12. And... They become vice consuls. Originally, they were going to send them over in uniform, uh, and then someone realized that if they went to war, then they could be shot. Yeah. So they decided they would send them over as you know uh, members of the State Department instead, which had other problems associated with it. Uh, so they, they come, and the idea is that they're going to inspect the shipments, and when the shipments come in, the idea is they go into the, the good state in French Morocco rather than being reshipped um, up to France and then on to Germany. But if you're inspecting uh, shipments, that means you have to go down to the port, which means you get to note what ships are in dock. And is the Jean Bart, which is a battleship that's uh, in Casablanca's harbor uh, and is, uh, needs a lot of work on it, you can note uh, how, how well that's going mm -hmm. and whether or not the turret is now functioning. Um, you can, they got to know everybody down at the port and then also because of that work at the port it opened up other doors in right. the city which would allow them to develop an like and help start to develop an intelligence network well and because of their ability to move around as diplomats they can inspect bridges and railroads and right. kind of all the things that you would need to know you know how to cut off utilities right. if you needed to and fortifications and everything that would go into prepping for an eventual invasion. They, they became great. I mean, they actually collected, I mean, they would get a list and they collected the order of battle for Morocco. They noted all the bridges. What does the coastline look like? They had 
contacts um, with um, the all the public service utilities. They practice low-level sabotage. They it was sort of it's kind of extraordinary um, what they were able to accomplish given that they weren't really trained right. in spycraft in the way that we would think you know that spies are conventionally trained today. Well, once the United States joins the war and the decision for torch was made, and you do a really good job, and I'm going to skip it, <laughs> talking about the back and forth deliberations between North Africa and Europe and right. everywhere else. The transatlantic essay contest yes. between Roosevelt and Churchill. With Stalin <laughs> as, throwing in a little Eisenhower, bit. Eisenhower, uh, like, throw some serious shade on them yeah. um, for that. <laughs> um, when the OSS is created, um, a man named William Eddy, is that how you pronounce his name, or Edie? I think it's Eddie. Um, Eddie arrives before OSS, though. Okay. So, right. So but Donovan hand, cho- cho- hand chose him. After Pearl Harbor. Right, but when he was yeah. coordinator of information, yep. not quite OSS director yeah, yet. This is, a great, this is also a great case of like the evolution of American intelligence yep. during the war, where we go from North Africa, from our spies being vice consul, to them being absorbed by Donovan and the coordinator of information, to then being OSS. And it's sort of a... Kind of nice little um, flow chart, as it were, of how mm-hmm. we go from infantile to well, a little more toddler stage, yes. maybe. <laughs> well, I mean, Eddie's an intelligence Eddie's- officer, and he actually has some necessary skill sets. Yeah, for He's working great. in that area of the world. I mean, he actually does speak Arabic. Yes, um, and he has, and he has some experience in that area of the world he's as well. a he's a great um i quite like him uh, in part because i'll admit as the historian he writes really good letters <laughs> um and which is always good um but he yeah he grew up in he grew up in syria um he's a child of missionaries speaks arabic um, but then he also had a phd in english lit and had been the president of hobart college and he's another one who when the war comes along resigns and joins the fight and he gets handpicked um by donovan and they set him up in Tangier uh, with the idea that he would basically coordinate intelligence activities both in Morocco and in Algeria. Um, and so they get a series, a suite of rooms at the American legation in Tangier uh, to set up a sort of a spy shop operation. Uh, but he, you know, he has a difficult time in Tangier too. They try, a couple of people try and blow up his car. Um, they're followed around all the time by Nazi agents. Uh, but he's, he's a, um, he actually, of all of them, he is the one person who, you know, sort of had the resume to do the job. Well, I mean, you can see the dramatic difference. You, you tell an anecdote mm-hmm. in the story of how uh, Reed uh, and one other man, I'm trying to remember the name, Holcomb, mm-hmm. was that it? Uh, freaked out because there's a celebration including yes. fire going on. And, <laughs> it's for Ramadan. And yeah, Eddie's like, Ramadan. It's and they're Ramadan. like, what is that? What is like, it? dude. <laughs> you're operating in a predominantly Muslim area and you have been for a while and you've never heard of Ramadan before. Well, I mean, Reed of... hadn't even heard the call to prayer until they, you know, spend a, and they land in Tangier for the first night. And he's like, what is that? Um, so that was the first, I mean, it's just sort of just a lack of experience with the region. So you're kind of starting to see the professionalization a yes. little bit as we move along. And it's just in time because the initial fight for North Africa, I think people don't quite understand. Number one, it wasn't just landing a bunch of troops on the beach. There's a massive naval battle. Yes. And, and I love this, you know, as trivia-wise, this, you know, the largest naval battle in the Atlantic was between the United States and the French. The French. Yeah. I mean, right. I, that, that to me, uh, it kind of great little never French, thought that way. The, the French didn't do so well. No, not so much. I, <laughs> I mean, they just, they get decimated. <laughs> um, 
They, yeah, so the first day of fighting, uh, it goes, the naval battle actually goes on for two days, but um, Admiral uh, Michelet, who is in charge of uh, the Casablanca base, would call the harbor a cemetery. Um, by the time the Americans were done, the Americans sustained a little bit of damage to one ship, but the French, I mean, the, what's left of the fleet is at the bottom of Casablanca mm. Harbor or beached. Yeah, no, I mean, in the USS Massachusetts, the battleship, which you can actually go on and yeah. up in Falls River, Massachusetts, it's, it kind of, it's not very fair. That ship by itself was, was more modern and powerful than essentially the entire French fleet, and it was joined by an entire task force. Yes of U.S. Navy. And, you know, the Army took a, you know, Kazarine Pass and others were a bit of a um, learning pains the hard way for the U.S. Army, but the Navy kind of knew what the hell they were doing, and they certainly showed it at the battle with the French. They did. Um, they definitely, definitely successful. And also one of the, I think one of the, uh, Hewitt gets a lot of credit, Admiral Kent Hewitt, uh, for how he would deploy the ships. But I also want to give Hewitt credit for how we got the fleet across the Atlantic. Because I think that it's one of the more extraordinary parts of the story in that we have this invasion, we have this task force of 101 ships. And they leave from five different points along the Atlantic seaboard in the Caribbean. And they meet up in the Atlantic and they form a, uh, they form a, ta um, a convoy that is 20 miles by 30 miles wide. And they managed to make it all the way across the Atlantic without being detected, right. which is extraordinary if we think about today and the fact that everything is, you know, observed by spy satellite and in communications and intercepts. But even at the time, it's extraordinary because you have the, the submarine force of the Germans right. spread out through the Atlantic and not a, you know, not a single one right. was able to report well, back that there's this massive... They would chase them away yeah. and they would, you know, conduct ops to sort of draw them away, but they still managed to make it off the coast and it's, it's a complete surprise. Um, so. And it's not like you're not bringing with you some interesting personalities in your task force because Are you talking about Patton? Well, and everybody else, but certainly, <laughs> you, know, you know, Mark Clark and George yes. Patton and others that are just kind of <laughs> awe of the capabilities of the Navy, which you don't normally see. No, Patton actually, yeah. it's surprising. He, you know, he gives, he, he's quite charmed by Hewitt. Um, I think, I have a feeling they had, there was some really great uh, drinking going on on the yeah. ship at various times, but he's very impressed by the job that they do and the work that they do and how they deliver his men and they deliver them on time. I mean, there's like even before they take off, there's a whole thing about like whether or not the Navy will actually get us there when they're supposed to, but they do and on time. And then they give them um, the backup firepower that they need. I was, I was pleasantly surprised by the book because it, oh. I, I mean, I, I shouldn't have been, I knew it should have been, you know, it was good coming <laughs> in, but the, the kind of, kind of thematic changes that take place through this book make it always interesting. Because for a good chunk of the book, you're going through personalities, and I'm looking up French names because I don't know these guys very well and other things. But there's a lot of politics, a lot of background. And about halfway through, it switches to a full-fledged, to me, a book about intelligence history with Mark Clark coming up on the beach from the submarine right. and doing and all that. And then there's a dramatic transition, and it's done very well to a military history. Once you start discussing the battle, and that's done very well, and it's not always easy to do, you know, Thank but you. all of a sudden I'm like, this, this shit got it. I mean, I've read enough military histories of World <laughs> War II, and I assume you have too to be able to pull it off that way. But all of a sudden there's a full-fledged military history of these battles and what's going on on land. And that, that to me made the book interesting throughout because it wasn't kind of the same thing for 500 pages. It's a big book, yeah. but it's kind of like multiple books at one in one place. And a shifting theme from kind of political history with Vichy and everything to full-fledged spies to full-fledged military history as you move forward. Well, everything sort of um, t 
holographs at the beginning, like we have this notion of resistance and collaboration and Vichy and the spies and everything sort of telegraphs right into Torch mm -hmm. and sort of every, all the pieces are put in place and then Torch sort of um, uh, unfurls. And for those that operate, we haven't really said this, but Operation Torch, November 8th, <laughs> um, 1942, um, the invasion starts. So thank you. So once the ground forces arrive, I, the role of OSS and those who had been working with the resistance essentially disappear. I mean, it does, yeah. King's work, he's been spending years at this point right. establishing relationship with the resistance, establishing who is, who are the people we should be dealing with, who are the collaborators, and the work is completely annoyed, ignored. They get called off um, because when, um, so four hours before the Americans are supposed to come ashore, we talked, um, Antoine Bazar, who we talked about before, the head of the Casablanca division, goes and visits Charles Nogas, who's the resident general, and says, you know, um, you know, you should surrender. The Americans are off the shore. You know, they're coming, they're coming ashore. Um, you don't want to fight. This is a good chance for you to be on the right side of history. Um, as he was doing that, they were concerned that the plans laid by the resistance would interfere with um, Beth Duarte's work, but that also potentially Americans. So they call off the resistance in Casablanca. Um, that, unlike in Algiers, which is actually um, the resistance in, in Algiers is key to taking the city in less than a day, but they get called off. Um, and so King kind of finds himself, along with Reed, um, stuck in the U.S. consulate, um, where they are under siege and um, attempts are there's an attempt made to um, take them out to the desert and imprison them. Uh, King manages to escape before he has to get on the bus with everybody else and sort of goes barreling around with some of his um, resistance buddies to try and uh, hook up with the Americans. But um, one of the problems that happens for OSS is that they've done all this work and they know all these people, but once the army arrives, the army doesn't know what to do with them. And so you see a lot of that work evaporate, and they're not interested in knowing who's a collaborator and who it's like isn't. Patton doesn't care. Patton doesn't care, yeah. in part because he's Patton's happy to let no guests just continue. So even after the Americans come, Charles No Guess, who's been running French Morocco, is allowed to continue on as resident general, um, partly because we did not show up with enough men to occupy the country and completely replace the administration. So we kind of had to go along with what was going on. And Patton is content to just let no guess run the country the best way he knows how. And that goes against his orders, because Eisenhower, yes. he basically had to make a command decision on the spot. Yeah. And, and it's one that perhaps others should have made later on of, this is not an occupying force. We're yeah. going to let the locals continue right. to occupy their own area, and locals yeah. meaning Vichy French. France. So that means that... Um, Bethuart's arrested, and he's, uh, Dave King has to basically go in and save him. Um, he was, there was a trial that was about to take place, and he would have been executed. Which is extraordinary. Again, I'm, I'm almost like laughing at this sardonically. The idea is that the Americans are there. They've captured the territory. And yet, the people who have been collaborating with the Germans are arresting the resistance members yes. who are collaborating with the United yes. States. Yes, yes all under our noses and you take, you know, if yeah. Dave King hadn't done something about it, they may have executed somebody who had been working with the United States literally as the U.S. forces are standing there watching. Yes. Um, it's, it's incredibly frustrating and very, um, Dave King gets very angry and it's one of the reasons he ends up leaving Casablanca um, because he, they're basically spending time trying to get their resistance contacts out of jail 
and you know, meanwhile, they're being arrested, constantly arrested. They're going around and arresting people. Uh, I mean, which yeah, which is a, a kind of a hint or, or a preamble to the insanely frustrating post-invasion politics between De Gaulle and everybody else that you do a great job going yeah. into. I'm going to let people read it because I don't you. even want to talk about it. <laughs> it is so confusing and annoying and frustrating. It makes you hate. If you hated De Gaulle before, you're going to hate him more, but you're going to hate everybody else too. Um, but it's, I, it's, I, it's very, it's a very, it's an incredibly frustrating period. And I think that's one of the reasons that we don't talk about North Africa the way that say we talk about other parts of the war because it is so messy and the, it's just morally um, sort of it's vague and murky and there it's so much gray and there's not a lot of black and white. Well, and it's so different than, than the conquer conquering geez, Vince, yes. of Japan and Germany because we had absolute power right. to do anything that we wanted to there. But we, we needed the French in North Africa because we right. didn't have the capability of doing the day to day. Right. We needed the mythical 100,000 troops that were supposedly right. ready to go that turns out they weren't quite ready to go, but we ended up uh, providing material and training for. So let me, let me wrap this up by asking, you kind of started with this, I'll end with it also, is how much, you know, when we, as historians, when we watch movies about our particular period, you know, for me, whenever mm-hmm. I watch a, a movie on intelligence or right. a movie on nuclear weapons, it's hard for me not to be nitpicky. Um, <laughs> How much has this ruined the cat movie Casablanca for you? I mean, is there is there just are there elements of truth in that? I you mean, know, it hasn't. Yeah. Um, because Casablanca, the movie itself, um, yes, there's a love story, but it's also about making decisions about what side are you on? Are you? Or do you resist? Do you collaborate? Um, and that is the whole entire story of North Africa is. You know, where is your line? What is the line that um, you won't cross mm-hmm. before you decide that you can't do X or Y or Z? Um, and it, ha- you know, it hasn't ruined it. Also, the rev- they, they're a lot. I mean, Casablanca gets a lot of stuff wrong, but it gets a lot of stuff right. Like the 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 struggle of the refugees to get mm-hmm. out, um, and how difficult it was, and how important visas are. That's that's absolutely true um you know it doesn't get other there are other things that it gets wrong and if you love the movie you can stop here no <laughs> but um it doesn't you know it doesn't uh you know rick is a a incredibly extraordinary would, would have been a very extraordinary character because before the americans arrived with thirty three thousand men in november 1942 there were only 100 americans in north in all of Morocco. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, Rick would have been extraordinary. But I, you know, I, it hasn't ruined it for me. <laughs> um, I'm not an obsessive. I have not watched it as many times as people think. But um, at its heart, it kind of gets the basics right. I mean, the it idea does, yeah. of kind of, and, and that really does come across in the book, this idea of who can you trust, who are the collaborators, you know, everyone has multiple loyalties and kind of you never know who's deceiving whom yes uh which really does come across not only in the movie but also in real life yeah so of all the podcasts and all the museums in the world uh, <laughs> meredith henley walked into mine uh she's the author of destination casablanca exile espionage in the battle of for north africa in world war ii don't get thrown off by the size of this book. It is well worth the read. Uh, and like I said, you can even break it up into pieces because it goes from a great World War II-era political history to a nice little spy history to a full-fledged military history. Uh, so thank you for taking the time to join us here today. Thank you uh, for truly having appreciate me. it. 
Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.